Okay, what I did was I, op as I divided up chapter 9 into several sections. The first section is the authority of Jesus is affirmed and demonstrated. That's, that's verses 1 through 36 of chapter 9. Then I have a section, verses 37 through 50, entitled The Flawed Followers. And then the final section is verses 51 through 62, entitled Jesus Sets His Face to Go to Jerusalem. And uh, so we'll, we'll cover, I would like to be able to cover the entire thing today, so we might end up going over by a few minutes. Already it oh, sorry. It's quite all right. Didn't see it there. So the first section is the authority of Jesus is affirmed and demonstrated, and I divided it up into several sections. The first section uh, deals with um, uh, Jesus gives the 12 power and authority over demons to cure diseases. The second section deals with Herod Antipas. Um, essentially denying Jesus' authority. The third section uh, deals with the feeding of the 5,000. The fourth section deals with uh, Peter's affirmation of Jesus as Messiah. And the fifth section um, uh, deals with uh, um, Jesus talking about going to the cross and dying. And finally, the sixth section deals with the transfiguration of Jesus. All that's within this first large segment entitled, The Authority of Jesus is Affirmed and Demonstrated. All right? So that's a lot of material to look through. So let's go. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, say, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do, do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. So here he's, he's kind of like been training his, um, his field operators. And now he sent them out to do what he has done, what he has trained and taught them how to do. To teach, to preach, to heal people, to deliver them from demons. And he knows he gives them authority. He gave them power and authority power and authority. Exousian is authority. Dunamin is power. Dunamis is the word from which we get the English word dynamite. And it means power. It actually means an explosive burst of energy or power in Greek. They have several words for energia is another word for energy. But dunamis is more poignant power. And that, this word is used repeatedly in the New Testament for the power that God gives us. And Jesus, it says it here that Jesus gives them dunamin or dunamis, kai exousian, and exousia is authority. Exousia is authority, and it literally means I give an order and it happens. There is no questioning. It's the kind of authority that the general says, hop, and you hop. The admiral says, move, and you move. 
the bishop says move and you move. Uh, and you don't question it. You, you ask how high after you've hopped. <laughs> it's, it's that precise and that commanding. And it's that power and authority that Jesus gives his disciples. Gave them power and authority. And notice, over all demons. You know, sometimes we feel as though we're, we're trapped in the to and fro of evil. You look out in the world and you see the horrible things that are done, those, the murders of people simply for being Christian that's been going on in Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere. It just, it's, just, it's just horrible. And you think, how can we confront evil? It's just little of us. It's not just little of us. Jesus has given the disciples and Jesus gives us. Remember, the disciples are essentially stand-ins for us. Anything that the disciples receive, we receive. Anything that a disciple receives, any and every Christian receives. All right? Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He gave them specific marching orders. That sounds great. But then look what he then says. Take nothing for your journey. Huh? I mean, I'm packing to go on vacation, and I'm going to have two checked bags and a carry-on bag, and I'm wondering if that's going to be enough for 31-plus days. I mean, come on. I mean, he says, take nothing for your journey. No staff. Not, not even anything to lean on. No staff, nor bag, nor bread. Don't even take food. Nor money. It's not as if you're going to expect it to buy your changes in underwear. Uh, and not even an extra tunic. Don't even take an extra shirt. I mean, that's scary. wonder why. Well, he do, I don't, I think. Focus your faith in him as your source of strength, as your source of authority, as your source for everything that you will need. Just trust in God. And on top of that, in, in conjunction with that, not on top of it, in conjunction with it, don't be burdened by anything. One of the things I dislike the most about traveling is having to lug suitcases and unpack them. Once you get it done, it's fabulous. It's one of the reasons I love to cruise. The cruise, you got yeah, your whole take, room and closet with you. Yeah, you just take your clothing out, you put it in the closets in the drawers, and you're done. I love that about cruising. But getting to the ship is a pain in the patootie. And so, and, and when I get to the hotel in Hong Kong, I'm going to be, for two days, I'm going to be living out of a bag. And I hate that. But there's really no choice. You just, that's what you do. I know, big oh, violin time now. You play your little micro violin <laughs> for me. Yeah, I'm not really complaining. Well, there's there's going to be something bad on your vacation. Uh, if that's the worst I experience, it's yeah. pretty good. 
But it's it's a it's a hassle to carry bags and be burdened. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. <sighs> wow. So Jesus has sent out his disciples. He's given them the authority to do the job, and he sent them out. You can read my commentary on that. Let's keep going. Now Herod, the ruler, that's the first, by the way, that's the first affirmation of the authority of Jesus. Has, Jesus has the authority to give them authority. That, that kind of takes a kind of authority, doesn't it? Let me, let me draw an analogy to that. I am an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. I was ordained in 1994, 21 years ago, this annual conference. As an elder in the church, I can preach, I can teach, I can administer the life of the church, I can preside at the sacrament of Holy Communion, I can do marriages and funerals, I can consecrate, I can um, uh, bless houses and cars and bicycles and horses and dogs and you name it. There is one thing though that I as an elder of the church cannot do because I am not a bishop. I can't ordain. If I were elected a bishop and hands were placed on my head to be consecrated a bishop, I would then have the authority to ordain. So all those other things I have the authority to do. But I don't have the authority to ordain. That's another kind, another office of authority that bishops are selected from the elders to perform and are consecrated to perform. It's not something that everybody can do. Likewise, you cannot give somebody else authority unless you have it yourself to begin with. And you have the authority to impart it. Okay? And that, just one second, and that is something that Jesus has. The authority to impart authority because he is the source of the authority. He has the authority to impart it. He has chosen these people. He has trained these people. He is now giving them the power and authority to go out and do this because the source of the power and authority is, frankly, himself. All right. And he's given them these restrictions, and he's told them what to do and how to do it. Now, Herod, the ruler, heard about all that had taken place, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And so he tried to see him. Interesting. So Herod is now heard, and he's curious about it, and he... It's not so much that he denies Jesus' authority. He's just amazed that this is going on. He knows who John the Baptist was because he had John the Baptist's head chopped off. Uh, but who is this? It certainly can't be John the Baptist because I killed him. 
Hmm. All right. So in a sense, this is the secular authority questioning the authority of Jesus, wondering where it's coming from, and desiring to encounter it. Interesting. So we've seen Jesus' authority affirmed by his authority to give power and authority to his disciples and send them out with directions to proclaim the kingdom of God and to deliver, pe deliver people from demons and to heal them. We've seen his authority questioned, investigated by the secular authorities of the day. Let's keep going. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out about it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. So it's almost as if Jesus decided to debrief his disciples. He took them to a place to debrief them, and the people around found out that they were there and went out to see him sort of interrupted Jesus' staff meeting. <laughs> and so Jesus doesn't send them away. He teaches them. He preaches to them. And he, he heals them. The day was drawing to a close. And the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a deserted place. In other words, Jesus... We're here out here in the wilderness, out here on the side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We don't have anything around. There's no McDonald's. There's no Burger Kings. There's no Kentucky Fried Chicken. There's nothing for these people to eat. We don't have anything really, not enough for them to eat. So send them away to go get some food. Send them over there to the Burger King to get some food. Send the crowd away so that they may go to the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a deserted place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. I see that picnic, back, picnic basket over there you guys got. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. I mean, we don't have enough, Jesus. I mean, come on. Five loaves and two fish barely feeds the twelve. Not even that, really. It barely feeds the twelve. Maybe. If some of them eat sparingly. But... Unless you're going to have us go get food for them. For there were about 5,000 men. Wow. There's no way that five loaves and two fish are going to feed 5,000 plus people. Is it? No. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so, and he made them all sit down. Made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. What was left over was gathered up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So in other words, there were more leftovers than there were original elements when they began. Interesting. Take a look at my commentary on this. Starts at the bottom, the last paragraph on the first page. Thirdly, we have the magnificent story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. This account is found in some form or another in all four Gospels and is a critical, and is crit a, and is critical for affirming Jesus' authority as the source of spiritual nourishment.
There are multiple unmistakable connections with the Last Supper and therefore with the church's historic practice of Holy Communion. Jesus' actions are sacramental in the most fundamental sense of the term. He takes our meager supply, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples who then give them to the people. Think about communion. We take the elements, they're not much. We bless them, we break the bread, and we give them to the disciples, to the servers, who then give them to the people. Every step here is reflected. Interesting. If we were to more perfectly reflect this in our worship, I would have the bread and a what's called a, a flagon with the grape juice in it brought down the center aisle from the narthex up to the altar and handed to me. And I would pour it into one or two chalices and set the bread on the table, receive it and set the bread on the table and begin the great thanksgiving. That would more perfectly reflect, and I've done that in churches, reflect this here. Taking, blessing, breaking, and giving to be given. These are all historically powerful motions and actions in the Lord's Supper and have been present in the celebration of the Lord's Supper since the earliest descriptions of it done, written by Justin Martyr in the last decade of the first century. Wow. And we see them reflected right here in all four versions of the feeding of the 5,000, but especially and simply easily described in Luke's version of it. <sighs> and all are fed to the point of being satisfied, i.e. Jesus provides our needs beyond our expectations. That word satisfied is a euphemism. It means they were stuffed. All right. Indeed, so abundant is the resulting feast that the leftovers are in greater abundance than the original supply. The temptation to de demythologize this story is great. Many will want to explain away the story by saying that the sharing of the five loaves and the two fish among Jesus and his disciples served to encourage the people to share their hidden picnic baskets so that all might have something to eat. In other words, they see Jesus sit down with his disciples and they take out the food and Jesus blesses it and gives it to the disciples and they say, oh, okay, and they reach in and they get their, their lunches out and they start to eat. That's how this story has been explained away, uh, especially since about well, the early part of the 20th century. People have tried to explain this story away or demythologize it, i.e. remove the miracle from it, to create a good moral play, i.e. a good illustration of what we should be doing, sharing of our abundance. So if you share what you've got with someone else who doesn't have any, then you can have some and they can have some, and everybody will have a little bit. That has, that, while that might be true that we should be sharing, and that's what you teach your children, that's not what this story is about. There are other things for that. There are other stories for that. Hmm. <sighs> Taking the miracle uh, apart in this way misses the entire point. 
Jesus is not only the source of our authority, he actually is both our authority and spiritual sustenance. Remember back when he, he, he commissioned, he gave them power, dunamis, and exousia, authority, to go out and do these things? The, the, he was the source of that. And here we see that reflected even in the feeding of the 5,000. If you take the miracle out of the story, you rob it of that message and turn it into a morality play only, rather than pointing out that we must first receive from Jesus that which he has for us, his love, his grace, his power, his strength, his knowledge. And when we receive from him what he has for us to receive, we can then turn and give it to others, and it becomes multiplied far beyond our comprehension. So while we bring to the, to the feast a meager supply, the re end result is so many leftovers you can't imagine it. First Thursday. First Thursday is a good example of that. <laughs> Everybody brings food and we got a lot. We got a lot. Yum, yummy food. Absolutely. Verse 18. Once when, when Jesus was praying alone, and notice we, had a, we have almost like a shift in scene here. Once while Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. Isn't that kind of like an echo of what they, what they said when Herod asked the question, who is this? And uh, uh, it says, uh, the, some say that he's John the Baptist, but raised from the dead. Some say that he's Elijah, appeared by the others, and some ancient prophet. So he's exactly what they had told the people, the, the, the uh, Herod's assistants had told him. The disciples are echoing that. Well, they, they think you're either John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the ancient prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God, the Christ of God. Those are all synonymous, synonymous concepts or words. Hmm. Peter's affirmation, fourthly, Peter's, uh, here uh, we have Peter's affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus has asked the disciples to share with him what the people are saying about him. Their response is a litany of identities, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the ancient prophets. After hearing this, Jesus asked more directly, who do you say that I am? Peter's response is just as direct, the Messiah of God. That question, how do we identify Jesus, is one which challenges us today. He has been proclaimed a prophet like Moses, the people experienced him as a healer and deliverer from unclean spirits. We have also seen him accused of being a friend of sinners, in which the sinners and we rejoice. But what do we say of Jesus? Who is Jesus for us? Which Jesus do we proclaim? Do we fashion Jesus after our own preferences? One of my biggest complaints about modern New Testament scholarship on Jesus and the attempt to discover the historical Jesus is that usually the kind of Jesus they discover is a reflection, a dim reflection of themselves. Whatever you bring to the study of who Jesus is is usually what you bring from it. You might 
modify it, you might refine it, you might discover the ideal version of what you ought to be. But in the end, you find the kind of Jesus you're looking for. So people who are involved in social justice ministries find a social justice Jesus. Those who are involved in holiness type ministries find a Jesus who's interested in personal holiness. Those who are engaged in racial reconciliation find a Jesus that reflects the, the contrary ethnicity, hence the black Jesuses or the Hispanic Jesuses or the Asian Jesuses. Uh, we, we, recreate, we recreate Jesus after our own fashion. It's interesting to look at the Jesus that was discovered and recreated or defined by the German scholars of the middle and early 20th century and how and using the exact same materials, how remarkably different this person is from the Jesus that is discovered by, the, by those who were raised in the 1960s in the radical you know, hippie movement. <laughs> Tie-dyed, dope-smoking Jesus is, <laughs> is what you get. We, we recreate Jesus after our own fashion. We do it all the time. And as much value as there is in the study of Jesus from the sources, in the end, we have to be far more tentative as to our conclusions and how we draw the boundaries of how we identify Jesus. Because Jesus has given us, in the Gospels at least, how to view him. And, there, and again, it can result in multiple different points of view and perspectives, but there are some commonalities amongst them all that so frequently people wanted to sort of jettison in order to find a Jesus that kind of looks like them. I mean, in the church, the Methodist church that I grew up in, mm -hmm. there was a little hallway that went past the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And there was this big picture of Jesus mm -hmm. who had blue eyes and blonde, blonde hair. Blonde hair. I think I know the picture you're talking yeah. about. We've all seen yeah. that picture. Behind the pulpit? Yeah. yeah. The blonde-haired, uh, blue-eyed Jesus. Or What's wrong at, with that? At, at, at Crestmore. <laughs> well, that sounds like you. <laughs> or at Crestmore King, the African-American Jesus. Crestmore King United Methodist Church in the chancel has this beautiful mural of Jesus standing with his arms out. Holds. Yeah. He's got kinky hair and he's African-American. This one had the exposed. Oh yes, heart. the heart. Oh yeah, the sacred heart image. Yeah, I mean uh, it, it, your culture determines more or less how you image Jesus. And there's an element that says there's nothing wrong with that because it allows you then to come into contact with Jesus and listen to him and learn from him. Because our prejudice is usually to be comfortable with people who are like us. Now at one level I have no problem with that because it's not, it's not really a picture of Jesus. It's like a window through which you see through to reality that's beyond the image. It's like the icons of the Eastern Orthodox Church and that I love. Um, those aren't real depictions of the people depicted in them. They're theological faith depictions that you look through them to see that which is beyond them. The problem is, is when we literalize those images to make them, well, Jesus really was blonde hair and blue dyed, or Jesus really was a sub-Saharan African from Nigeria. I mean, no. <laughs> Jesus, frankly, if you really want to be blunt, he looked like kind of a young Yasser Arafat. I mean, kind of a dark-complected uh, fellow. 
Of, about five foot tall, I read someplace. Yeah, somewhere around five feet tall. But that was about the average height for a man in, in the area at the time. Yeah, absolutely. We, we um, if you really want to be historical, that's the physical characteristics you're going after. But I consider those to be far, that, that whole question to be far less important than this basic statement as to who we say that Jesus is. Jesus is. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you say, well, Jesus is my Lord, or Jesus is my God, or Jesus is my King, do you act like it? Do you obey him? I would want to say Jesus is my Lord, but I know for a fact that I don't always obey him. I should. And when I fail, I fail big time. Well, Jesus is my friend. Well, you don't spend a whole lot of time with your friend. I had somebody tell me, oh, Jesus is my friend. How often do you pray? Uh, a couple of times a week in church. How often do you read scripture? If I have to in church. If I'm asked to in church. How often do you go to church? A couple of times a month, maybe. If you had a friend who only talked to you on a rare occasion and didn't communicate with you much at all and missed appointments after appointment after appointment after appointment and never bothered to tell you ahead of time, do you think you'd still be a friend? Ow. <laughs> Ow. Yeah. So he's asked them this really pointed question. And the question is a good one, and it's one that we need to be thinking about. In fact, it's one of those questions that all Christians should be considering, praying about, and answering for themselves. Who do we say that Jesus is? Because if you can't say, if you don't know, then I venture to guess you don't know him. He sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I find it amazing that there's no commentary on that here. Later on, they're going to whine and complain about it and disagree with it and say, Oh, no, Jesus, far be it from you. And in some of the Gospels, they tell him he's insane because that doesn't reflect what a Messiah is supposed to do. Remember? Messiahs don't die. They win. They defeat the, poor, the powers and forces of the occupation. They don't get defeated by it. They don't get killed by it. Um, but here Jesus is saying, nah, don't tell anybody about this because this has to happen. And there's no commentary. It's like it sails over the disciples' heads and they don't hear it. They're so busy rejoicing over Jesus being the Messiah and that he doesn't tell them, oh no, you're wrong. That it goes in one ear and out the other or sails over their heads. They don't comprehend what he's saying to them. That yes, he's the Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah you were expecting. He's the kind of Messiah who has to die. And on the third day, be raised. Interesting. Right there, you've got 
you know, the whole business of Jesus dying and being raised right there, way back here in chapter 9 of Luke. And we've got a lot of chapters to go to get to that. Then he said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my deeds, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Interesting. Oh, boy. Now, quite frankly, I skipped over that part of the interpretation just because it was rather uh, steep and would have required a heck of a lot more material space than I was given. Uh, Jesus yanks them back to the reality by saying what's going to happen. And, of course, they don't really want to hear it. And notice what it says. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? What does it mean to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? What does that mean? This question is going to come up again at the end of the chapter. So we might hold it because it's kind of addressed later on. It's not really addressed here. Jesus simply says it, and the disciples act as if they don't really even hear it. This is not the kind of stuff we really want to hear, is it? I mean, following Jesus ought to be easy and fun, right? No. Tuning out was around then, too. Right? Huh? Tuning out was around at that time, too. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier to live. Yeah. Now, about eight days after, and, and notice, so you've got authority proclaimed. You've got authority proclaimed and Jesus giving the disciples authority to do these, this work. You've got authority proclaimed, essentially questioned and identified and questioned by Herod. You've got his authority uh, proclaimed in the feeding of the 5,000 because he simply feeds them. You've got this whole question about who does people say that he is, and, and, and the, the disciples, Peter especially, identify him as the Messiah. So his followers recognize his authority and his power. So you've got all of these basic elements here. Now we come to the greatest affirmation of his authority and in, in, in the most complete illustration of it. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and James, John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, it's not as if they wear name badges or have little names above their heads linking Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah, like Edith Joe's. It, it, it doesn't say how they know it's Moses. They just know. 
that it's Moses and Elijah talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. So they're kind of like half in, half dream state, and they see this going on. And it kind of shakes them, so they jump up. And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for, you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Kind of like he's trying to keep Moses and Elijah there. Not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, this is one of those examples of Peter sticking his left foot in his mouth. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, or possibly my beloved, depending on your reason your source. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silence. Well, good. And they kept silent, and in those days told no one of any of the things they had seen. So here we have essentially God now pointing out Jesus's identity, Jesus' authority, Jesus' power. We see it illustrated by his face being changed, his clothing become dazzling white, and he's having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are the most important representatives of the Hebrew faith. Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, the beginning and the first of the great prophets. And you see them both standing there <coughs> conversing with Jesus about what was getting ready to happen. Jesus' own going to the cross and dying. And of course, Peter, James, and John snooze and miss, miss much of the significance, try to get involved with it when they see Moses and Elijah getting ready to leave and get involved in the middle of it. And God says, hush up and pay attention to Jesus. Essentially. So God identifies. So you have all these basic affirmations of Jesus' authority. His own affirmation by giving authority and power to the disciples. The, the secular leadership questioning his authority. The feeding of the 5,000 reflecting his being the source of nourishment and strength for the people. Uh, you see the disciples' affirmation of Jesus' authority. And how that authority works itself out, not so much in victory as it does in death, which leads to victory. And now you have God identifying Jesus' authority in the transfiguration. So that's the first section of the chapter. These multiple affirmations of Jesus' authority and power. Questions before we move forward? Because now we're going to look at the flawed followers of Jesus. We've already seen a bunch, but we're going to get to see some more. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit, suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. 
I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Well, they had authority and a power to cast out demons, but they couldn't do it. Hmm. Hmm. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse, perverse generation, how much longer... How much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. Kind of trying to, kind of like a kid. I don't want to go, throwing a temper tantrum. Um, it's kind of what it is. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. So, so here we have another example of Luke conflating exorcism and healing. It happens repeatedly in Luke's gospel. Here's a good example of it. It says that he rebukes the demon, the unclean spirit, and heals the boy. So in many ways, Luke does understand exorcisms as a form of healing. And gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. So here... You see this exorcism healing, its result is people being astounded at the greatness of God, which is the objective to begin with, to recognize that God is right here in their midst. God is in Christ doing these things, and they celebrate the greatness of God. Kind of different from the man who's delivered from legion, and the people were terrified as a result, isn't it? When the man was delivered from the legion and the demons went into the pigs and dashed themselves into the sea, the people of the town there were terrified of the situation. Here you have a different, a different response. Instead of fear, you have faith. Hmm. While everyone was amazed at all that, was going, that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. In other words, okay now. Pay close attention. <laughs> Sink into your ears. The son, he's already said these things. He's going to repeat them now. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. I mean, this is great. You've seen some wonderful stuff. You saw me become transfigured on, on Mount Tabor, and you just saw me deliver this child from these demons, and everybody's amazed about this, and that's good, but listen. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. But they did not understand. They did not understand this saying. Its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They weren't ready to hear it. They weren't capable of hearing it. They were kept from hearing it. This just does not equate with what they're expecting Messiahs to do and be. This theme is replete throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this concept of a Messiah who dies is foreign to their hearing. They weren't expecting it. Not until Jesus was this concept of the suffering servant applied to the Messiah. This was something new. And every time it's stated here in Luke, thus far, they either, it just kind of goes right over their heads or it comes right out in states. They could not believe it. They could not 
believe it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument, and obviously so, because look what happens next. An argument arose amongst them as to which one of them was the greatest. Whoop-dee-doo. Jesus has just told you he's going to have to go and die. And you're arguing amongst yourself as to who gets to be the greatest? You obviously haven't heard a thing he said. Yep, that's right. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among all of you is the greatest. No, they didn't get it. No, they didn't get it. And, and quite frankly, the church hasn't gotten any better. It, it, it simply hasn't. We're still doing the same kind of thing. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. <laughs> but Jesus said, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Here's this fella, John, saying, Since he's not one of us, let us stop him. Let us let, us let make him stop. That's just, that kind of blows me away. It's a real good example of a flawed disciple. Uh, my commentary on that. John wants to stop this person because he's not following with us. This is a perfect example of where the church is today. We spend far too much time arguing about divisions and disagreements that have no impact on questions of salvation. We need to be reminded of Jesus' own words. Whoever's not against you is for you. If it has to do with issues of salvation, then it's important. But if it doesn't, what are you arguing about it for? This, this person is delivering people from demons using the authority of Jesus' name. That in an, it's a good thing that people are being delivered by demons. It's a good thing that the authority of Jesus' name is being invoked for this purpose. Just because he's not a follower along with the disciples doesn't mean that he shouldn't be encouraged. Rather than telling him to stop, welcome him in, crying out loud. Hmm. Okay, right here we have a problem. <clears throat> Remember when I said that the chapters and verse divisions in the New Testament, in fact, throughout the entire Bible, were all added much later by copyists. Here we have an example of, and usually the chapter divisions and verse divisions make sense. This is an example of where they don't. The chapter divisions don't make sense. Really and truly, that should have been the end of chapter 9. In terms of the, the way in which the story flows, that should have ended chapter 9. And chapter 10 should have started with verse 51 of chapter 9. So to say in my commentary, the chapter and verse divisions were all much later additions to the text. Frequently, the chapter divisions are accurate reflections of the movements within the text. But here we have an example of where the opposite can be the case. Chapter 9 probably should have been brought to a close at the end of verse 50. And chapter 10 should have begun with what we find in 951. 
And that's because what happens in 9, verse 51 and following goes more with what we find in chapter 10. Now, it does build upon what we have in 9, just as what we have in 9 built upon what happened in 8, and just as what happened in 8 built upon chapter 7. But there's a real change in focus here. Because with verse 51, Jesus changes his, his whole focus and intent of his ministry from what it's been around the Sea of Galilee up until now to now moving towards Jerusalem. You see it in the very first verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a whole shift. And it, and it follows here all the way through. From this point on, it's a whole shift in Jesus' ministry. It's a major shift that probably ought to signal a new chapter. Hmm. There are some connections with chapter 9, though, so let's keep reading. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. To, to go from Galilee to Judea, there's essentially two paths. One is to go down to the Jordan River and take a boat down the Jordan River to the road just outside of Jericho that leads all the way up to Jerusalem. And, and you can take that boat all the, in Jesus' day when there wasn't a major dam on the Sea of Galilee. You could take the boat all the way down the River Jordan and get off at Jericho and then take the, the mountain pass road all the way up into the mountain tops to where Jerusalem is located in the Judean hill country. The other route is the mountain pass roads through Samaria. From Galilee you head southwards through Samaria all the way down into Judea on the mountain pass roads. Mostly uh, roads that are kind of rank, link, you know, string along through the mountain tops. Sometimes they'll go down one hill and go up another. To live in Judea and in Israel you almost have to be part billy goat because you're always having to go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And there's really no way to do to travel anywhere north to south without, unless you take the, Jor the, the Jordan River route, then to go up and down and up and down. But for large chunks of it, you can go along a mountain range pretty much at a high elevated level where it was much more comfortable to travel because it wasn't as beastly hot and you actually had some water to drink from melting snow. You could walk along the mountain sides and on, on these paths that go all the way from north to south, and it would take you through Samaria. And that's where the Samaritans live, and of course, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along very well. But Jesus has had some ministry amongst the Samaritans, and so it made sense that, you know, we will try to have some interaction with, uh, with some Samaritans here on this journey. And so he had sent people ahead of him to prepare the way on the journey, and uh, on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. I mean, well, you know, if he was coming to greet them and to be with them and to teach them, they would have been happy about that. But he's heading on to Jerusalem, and Samaritans hate Jews, and hate everything to do with Jerusalem. So that's it. We're not going to receive Jesus since he's going to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Sometimes uh, 
James and John Zebedee are called the Sons of Thunder because of that. Scorched Earth. Yeah, Scorched Earth policy. We want to blast them. Reminds me of the, 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 the um, Bugs Bunny cartoon with Elmer Fudd singing Kill the Wabbit from the March of the Flight of the Valkyries. And, and he's you know, doing this and the lightning bolts come down from heaven and try to, to, to fry Bugs Bunny to a crisp. I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of what they want to do. Um, but he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. So they wanted to blast them. And Jesus said, no. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, we assume that that person who said, I'll follow you wherever you go, kind of said, all right, <laughs> and flinked off. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, First let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That doesn't sound very nice. In the first case, you had the guy offering to go. And Jesus kind of pointing out the price of this discipleship is pretty high. And the second, you have a Jesus calling someone and him saying, well, let me go take care of my family obligations first. And Jesus says, the, no, you're supposed to proclaim the kingdom of God. Let the family take care of itself. Still seems kind of harsh. Hmm. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. I just want to say goodbye. Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you've already started. You've already started following me. I'm heading on to Jerusalem. You want to stop, run back to your home and say, Bye-bye, Mommy. You can't quit. If you quit, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And so the story continues. Now, there is an element, and it's the reason why these verses were probably included in chapter 9, is because you still have these imperfect disciples and imperfect people who either feel they are called or whom Jesus calls and they themselves prove that they really aren't ready, um, described in these verses. But really, this whole section here, Jesus making his trip now to Jerusalem, really goes with chapter 10. Okay, questions? It's a lot of material in this chapter. The first section deals with Jesus' authority and power. His authority to give it, its recognition by the, uh, by the powers of the day, his demonstration of it by feeding the 5,000, his disciples' recognition of it, his own uh, experience of having God recognize it in the in the um, transfiguration. So you have all these affirmations of Jesus's authority and power affirmed and demonstrated. You then have the flawed followers of Jesus kind of pointed out. And one of the elements of being, you know, this whole illustration of these flawed followers of Jesus, one element here, an important element really, 
is to note that, my goodness, if he was willing to work with this bunch of people who wanted to send people away who and, and force them not to heal folk because they don't follow Jesus or uh, call fire and brimstone down on a city that doesn't receive him or, or, or you know, these people who, who are called want to go back and, and, and set their affairs in order. What's so bad about that? Well, if God, if Jesus is still willing to work with these um, flawed followers, human beings. human beings, then he'll work with us. He gives us hope that he can still use us. If he could use Peter, James, and John, he can use us. If he can use these disciples as they're arguing with each other as to who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, and he still uses them, he can use us. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.